When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Probably one of the more unkind things I've ever written is uh, this remark. It's often struck me how sad it is that artists, a tribe so cripplingly self-conscious and selfish and jealous and full of themselves, are the ones to make our art. But just by thinking such a thing, I prove that I'm no different. Imagining again that I am separate and estranged or original, I'm just another face in the same writerly crowd. I want to focus on one of those words uh, that I put in that remark, and that is the word jealous. I want to talk about jealousy if I can, if I can find a way to do it. I think that I cut that sentence out of an essay I was writing, uh, not only because it was so unkind, but because, as the, the sentence uh, following the one about jealousy says, the remark is also uh, a mirror pointing back at me. Uh, I'm the one who is jealous. It's true that uh, uh, any writer out there uh, can think of a handful of other writers that he or she knows, other artists, other uh, creative people. And uh, if you have the idea of a jealous artist in mind, uh, it's not hard to uh, think of specific samples of that mindset. But I think that I definitely am one of them. And I don't know if what I mean to do here for the next half hour or so is to wonder how or why that happened. I just sort of want to talk about it, uh, get examples of it. Uh, I guess I am trying to fi figure out the why of it, if I'm being honest. There's always the idea of a, of a why or, a, or an origin of some kind. If you can understand the origin, you can uh, perhaps change the outcome or at least make it a little bit more healthy. And the one of the images that uh, I came across in thinking about this was when I was uh, uh, I had I was in between jobs in my early 20s and had um, actually just found a, a new job living in a double wide with a man in his 80s I believe it was uh, I was sort of his live-in caretaker and it suited me fine it was the summer this doesn't sound like what most people would want to do in their early 20s in the summer, is spend their days with, uh, with an 80-year-old. But uh, we sort of kept to ourselves, and I was just there in case, basically in case of an emergency, I think. Um, his daughter told me if anything ever happened uh, in the bathroom or the shower that I wouldn't have to clean anything up and that I would just have to call her, and the only time that happened... Uh, that was the case. Uh, so that what the time gave me uh, this summer in a double wide in the woods of Ashtabula, Ohio, was just a, a lot of time to myself to think and to read. And it was this nine months or so, I believe I was there, of isolation that finally got me at the end of it to make a huge leap, a huge move, my first move away from home.
and to Georgia. And the reason I did that was because during one of these uh, long nights in the woods, uh, basically by myself, uh, because the old man went to sleep fairly early and slept fairly late, uh, I was reading uh, Richmond Lattimore's translation of the Iliad, which if anyone has tried to read Lattimore's translation of the Iliad, uh, at least the version I have, uh, the lines of, of Lattimore's version of Homer are so long that they come to the end of the page, the edge of the page almost. And I had to take breaks in between reading this version of the Iliad. Uh, I couldn't read it all at once. And that was brought home to me again immediately after when I read uh, Robert Fitzgerald's translation of the Odyssey, which is beautiful and uh, moves very well. And it should move very well given the story. Um, but by, by comparison, uh, Fitzgerald's Odyssey was like reading a popular novel almost. Um, and, the, and the experience of reading Lattimore's Iliad was what gave me the idea to uh, write a long poem about America. And by the time I moved to Georgia, I knew that that poem would center on the Civil War. So that those, so that, that time, those nine months, um, those gestation months in the woods were extremely important to me. But one of the vivid memories I have of that time was reading about uh, Jonathan Safran Foer, uh, who was about my age. He might be a little older than me. And, and hearing about the book contract that he had gotten. And uh, I had a novel myself that I was trying to sell. And I thought, uh, well, if they're, if they're handing out contracts like that to... Uh, Jonathan Safran Foer, they might as well uh, end up doing the same to me. And of course that never happened. And when I later ended up in California and picked up his second book, or maybe his third, I felt that same jealousy come over me again uh, of this person who was round about my age, who I didn't really see as being... Um, light years ahead of what I was doing. And the question uh, always arises, uh, how does that happen? Why does it happen? Um, the easy answer for me was that he went to an Ivy League school and he had a, a famous author as a professor who uh, I assume got his, his manuscript in front of editors, uh, his brothers, I think, are also writers and uh, in New York, and it couldn't have been uh, a bad thing for that to be the case. I'm sure they knew people who knew people. And you also see how this goes sometimes as well. Uh, I don't really know his full story at all. I can't say that, uh, I think it was Joyce Carol Oates who taught him at college, I can't say that she got him an inn at Random House or wherever it was. I can't say that his brother got him an inn somewhere that made him famous. I can't say that uh, it was just an Ivy League school that got him where he was going. I can't even say that I've read one of his books beyond a few pages. But what I can say is, is that even now, I still sort of enjoy seeing uh, negative reviews of things that he's written. And I really despise that about myself, that, uh, that I'm happy when uh, someone tries to take him down. Uh, because who, I have no idea who he even is uh, as a person. Um, it's one of those things that, that happens. And it's not something that happens to every writer. I know this. Uh, there are a handful of poets that I know. They do seem to be poets, by the way. Uh, it, this trait seems to be harder to find in, uh, excuse me, in novelists or 
historians or people who expect to have a huge audience. Uh, there are a handful of poets I know who don't really submit their poetry anywhere, who aren't really interested that much in being published, and they're astonishing poets, but they just don't really see a need. Um, or it's not a driving need anyway. It's not the driving need that I've always had as a writer to get published. The driving need of mine to get published and to be angry at those uh, who get published instead of me. Um, I thought it was worth uh, starting with uh, a few passages from uh, Peter Aykroyd's biography of William Blake, just as a jumping-off point, there are a few things that he mentions here that are that are worth talking about. Uh, the first is uh, Peter Aykroyd talks about the the artist and contemporary of Blake's called John Flaxman, and he says uh, Flaxman is in fact one of the paradoxes of cultural history. He became the single most influential English artist of his day, and a sculptor whose name was known all over Europe, but he is now almost entirely forgotten, except by scholars and art historians. And as far as I know, I never heard of John Flaxman before either, and it's not hard to find stories like that in the history of... Uh, of culture, of people who were famous in their time and are forgotten now, people like Blake who were basically ignored in their time and are in the stratosphere now. Uh, Aykroyd also mentions that, uh, that William Blake's experience of uh, Raphael and Michelangelo's art uh, were were only known through reproductions. Uh, obviously, there were no photographs uh, at the time that Blake was living, and Blake never went to Italy. So he never saw Raphael or Michelangelo or many other artists outside of reproductions. And we can imagine how good or bad those reproductions could have been uh, in published books of Blake's time. And that brings up uh, another thing. Not only is it hard to predict what will last, uh, what will be forgotten, and then what will suddenly be rediscovered or remembered, uh, I think one of the things that I got caught on very early on when thinking about art and the idea of uh, not necessarily being famous, but just of being published and generally known the idea that uh, that what you encounter from an artist is their finished product and the thing that they intended to put before you, um, almost sort of like a, a some sort of some sort of perfect thing that they made uh, to give to you, and that you will respond in kind, almost an ideal situation. But in the case of uh, Blake and Raphael or Michelangelo, what they saw was not Raphael or Michelangelo. What they saw was someone's drawing of Michelangelo and Raphael uh, from a trip when they took to Italy. Uh, I thought the same way about uh, Dante, where we have, where most people will, most people who know Dante, they know, uh, maybe they know him from the movie Seven. That's where I first came across Dante. Maybe if they're lucky in college, they read the Inferno, but very often they, no one goes beyond that to the uh, purgatory or paradise. And what you know of Dante, what you know of, I don't know, uh, Vermeer, uh, I'm thinking of artists, poets, very often outside of specialists, what people know of artists, painters, musicians, uh, in our day, movie directors, people like that. What they know are bits and pieces. Uh, I could be 
I'm working on a novel or a story or, or the long poem that I moved to Georgia to write. I could be painstakingly working on that, trying to get it just perfect. When in the end, if it, if any of it survives at all, it could just be a part of it, a remark, a phrase, a quotation, a description, something like that. Or in the case of Shakespeare, who didn't even care whether uh, it seems if his work lasted, we have early quartos, we have uh, bad quartos that were published in his lifetime, pirated editions. We have the, uh, the first folio that uh, most, of his, most of his subsequent uh, uh, published work is based on, which seem to be a mixture of, uh, of what his contemporaries had from uh, actors' prompts and their own memory. Uh, all of this is extremely imperfect and scattershot, and I don't think, I mean, how would I have been at 12 or 13 years old? I simply was not aware of that basic imperfection in things. Um, I don't know how I would have reacted if I would. I mean, how would a 12 or a 13 year old who's decided to sit down and write a book um, I probably wouldn't have been mature enough to even under quite understand what that meant um, and it also didn't help that the, the version of fame or attention that I was being given by television or the movies was I won't say uh it was so far from being imperfect, but also so far from being perfect. It's, uh, it's an act. That's something I also did see when I was very young, that most of it is just a stage-managed uh, act that nobody is really living. Uh, it's very hard nowadays to go on Twitter or anything like it and see what an actor has said and what you want to do is reply and think that's just something that a dumb actor says. But it isn't really. It's uh, the actor's persona who's saying it. Who knows what these people are actually like to sit down and talk to. They could be uh, decent human beings. Peter Ackroyd also quotes William Blake. Uh, as saying uh, that Blake had the stubborn obstinacy of his class as well as the confidence of his own genius and he maintained his own path and William Blake says I thank God that I courageously pursued my course through the darkness William Blake also said I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's I will not reason and compare my business is to create. And you see in Blake uh, a, a, uh, an immense grumbling that I have great sympathy with, uh, an immense anger that I have sympathy with, his jealousy of those uh, visual artists and those poets, because as we remember, Blake was a genius in both, as he has seen from the distance of time. G uh, Blake was a genius at both. Uh, but during his lifetime, he saw other painters, other visual artists, and other poets uh, becoming famous, getting the, um, getting the work that he would never get. And you can see him uh, being unreasonable, as I, as I feel unreasonable in myself, when he says something like this. He says, commerce cannot endure individual merit. Its insatiable maw must be fed by what all can do equally well. Um, I can see some truth in that, that uh, what is common and what is commerce and what is popular has to uh, sort of be uh, an average mediocrity, but at the same time that isn't entirely true because I know many great artists, many poets, many writers, many thinkers, many musicians, many other people who were 
good at what they did and great at what they did, and they received all of the attention that they deserved in their lifetimes. Uh, it's a great and frustrating puzzle. Uh, Peter Ackroyd also has this to say about William Blake. He says, his independence meant that he could preserve his vision beyond all taint, and that integrity is an essential aspect of his genius, but it also encouraged him to withdraw from the world of common discourse. Although these consequences were not immediately apparent, over the years his range of reference and illusion became more private and more confined. Out of his isolation he created a myth, but it was one that was never vouch vouchsafed to his contemporaries, and one that even now is generally neglected or misunderstood. Blake's life is, in that sense, a parable of the artist who avoids the marketplace, where all others come to buy and sell. He preserved himself inviolate, but his freedom became a form of solitude. He worked for himself, and he listened only to himself. In the process, he lost any ability to judge his own work. He had the capacity to become a great public and religious poet, but, instead, he turned in upon himself and gained neither influence nor reputation. And just reading that now uh, brings two things to mind. The first is that uh, Peter Ackroyd says he had the capacity to become a great public and religious poet, I could, if you'll forgive me for saying so, I could see the same role for myself in some small way. But I feel when I read someone like Blake or I read someone like Van Gogh or um, uh, many other people uh, that, uh, that you can think of, the capacity is there and the... Uh, Belief in oneself is there, the talent is there, but there is some kind of uh, ability, some kind of dealing with the public, some kind of uh, public face or acting or playing or playing the game of getting to know so-and-so, getting to know so-and-so. Again, I would come back to someone like Foer who uh, could make it in the Ivy League perhaps in a way that I could not. Uh, who could uh, achieve something uh, in a standard system of education that I would be unable to do. Uh, it isn't just a capacity or a talent. It is also simply a way to, uh, how would you put it, to act a certain way in public that Blake did not have and that I certainly don't believe that I have ever had. I have never been one to uh, go to the uh, big conferences of literary agents to try and sell my novels. I've never been one to do any of the uh, self-promotional things that writers seem to be able to do effortlessly, many of them. I don't even want my own name associated with this podcast, even though it, if you pick up scraps here and there, it wouldn't be very hard to find out uh, who I am. And that is just uh, a limitation that I've grown used to. I was told when I, soon after I moved to Georgia uh, and was working on this long poem, I was also still running a small press at the time and dealing with writers all over the place. And a friend of mine in Georgia uh, just came right out and told me, you know, you could be a hipster if you really wanted to. You could have followers if you wanted to. You could be a, a guru if you wanted to. You know, I, uh, I'd, re I'd read just enough to be able to, that I could possibly con people into thinking that I had read even more and that I could be some sort of a center that people could come to for advice. Uh, even then, in my early 20s, excuse me, even then in my early 20s when all I wanted was success in some way, 
the idea of doing that uh, was sort of uh, revolting to me. Um, and I, w I guess I could have tried to do it, but uh, obviously I never even tried. And then there's <clears throat> another good remark to read comes from Seamus Heaney. Um, the first is, let's just read the one uh, and see if we need to go on from there. Uh, the interviewer says to him, uh, without a network, what chance does a gifted new 21st century poet have of being selected from the teeming slush piles and entrees? And to my great distress, Seamus Heaney replied with hardly any, I agree. So the care of teachers and the network of writing schools is the new reality. Um, and he says, uh, there are times when you realize that the guild, the poets guild, the writers guild, now consists as much of networkers as dream workers. I have never been one to network either. Um, when I was when I was running a small press, I got very close to being a networker. But in the end, my desire to write my long poem, and in the end, my desire to gravitate towards mythology and the history of religion, and to take religion seriously also, uh, put me on the outside of nearly everyone my own age that I came across who was writing poetry. Seamus Heaney also says in the same interview that when he would go, especially to the United States, uh, to the creative writing schools, um, to hear poets read, he would say, usually you hear about people at other writing schools, people who are at the center of webs, who are good enough representatives of the contemporary scene, but they are proof of what the poet Donald Davey once termed lowered sights and diminished expectations. And he makes the point elsewhere and says that when you when you go to these readings and you ask the poets who are the people they most admire, uh, the, the poets they name drop aren't the aren't the long dead ones, but the basically the people who've been writing and who have been getting in the public eye over the last decade or so. There isn't uh, to put it unkindly, because certainly there are great poets out there working right now, but to put it unkindly, I think what Heaney was saying was that uh, it is simply much easier to get by, especially if networking is so essential now. Uh, it's much easier to get by and it's much easier to feel as if you belong if you prop up the huge crowd of mediocre poets who are writing today, rather than sit off in the corner and praise the dozen or two dozen or so truly astounding poets of the past that you truly learn from. I don't know that I've so far touched on jealousy very much. I'm trying to or I'm trying to figure out exactly uh, where or why it occurred to me. One of the things I think is simply a misunderstanding of what I perceived fame or attention or success to be. In one, in one, uh, uh, in one way of putting it, I would read, for instance, about someone like W.H. Auden who lived in a hole in New York City uh, and was basically able to make a living writing reviews for the New York Review of Books. Uh, I fell in love with stories of literary Paris in the 1920s, only later to discover that literary Paris only really happened because uh, it was so cheap to live in as a result of the debt that France had incurred um, over World War I. There are these romantic stories we have of writers and of writing. Uh, 
W.H. Auden, for instance, lived in New York City. Many writers that I spoke with uh, early in my life wanted to go and live in New York City. But what we didn't know, in the case of literary Paris or living in New York City or, or in uh, trying to repeat what we've heard of the Beat Generation or any school or gathering of writers that, is, that later become famous, is that uh, that moment is unrepeatable. And that moment itself that, that we become so attached to um, was itself contingent on things that uh, would, would make the moment uh, doubly unrepeatable today. It's hard to think just as well of literary Paris happening today. Joyce and Hemingway and uh, Shakespeare and company and all of that going on. It's just a shame that uh, no one mentions this when you're 20. And it's a shame too, at least in my case, because I prob that I probably would have been too stubborn to listen anyway. And if you're thinking about literary Paris or literary New York, back when these places were livable by the average person who doesn't have a bunch of money, there's also just the details you don't hear about, which I've mentioned many times simply of, uh, of Homer taking out the garbage. Um, you just don't hear those stories when you're coming up and when you're first becoming attached to the idea of being a poet. I say you don't. Uh, what I mean is, is that I didn't. One of, the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the healthy things about trying to do this right now is to realize that it, it could perhaps just be me and my own limitations. Uh, for a very long time, uh, what I did um, what I did was look at the age of writers when they wrote certain works. Uh, I was encouraged when I was a late teenager and in my 20s, for instance, that Dylan Thomas published his book, first book of poetry when he was 19, that uh, James Joyce wrote his short story, The Dead, at the age of 26, which is still pretty astonishing. But then as I got older and as um, the renown did not come, or just the big publishing contract and the, uh, uh, the movie adaptation did not materialize, Suddenly, I took solace in the fact that Walt Whitman self-published his Leaves of Grass for the first time in 35, uh, that Toni Morrison, Wal Wallace Stevens, Robinson Jeffers uh, did not have their first major publications in uh, novels or poetry until the age of 40 or so. But even then, I can see the, the sort of... Uh, the sort of hollowness of merely looking at the age, because as anyone who's listened to the Whitman episodes here knows, uh, Whitman perhaps became infamous, but uh, he didn't become famous or rich as a result of Leaves of Grass. Uh, Wallace Stevens uh, remained jealous of Robert Frost, uh, Robert Frost who would get all of the honorary degrees and Wallace Stevens got none. In one of those great remarks they're supposed to have said to each other in Key West, uh, uh, Robert Frost says something like, you and your poems about ideas. And Stephen sneers at him and says, you and your poems about things. Um, Robinson Jeffers uh, became, I, I guess you would say, about as famous as a poet could be in the United States uh, outside of Robert Frost. But uh, he wasn't living the high life in, uh, in California either, building his own house. And there's also just the economics of Jeffers being able to live basically on nothing on the coast, on the San Francisco coast. There's the story of the mythologist Joseph Campbell that I also became very attached to, the story of him uh, coming back from France, uh, finishing his master's degree, realizing he didn't want to do a PhD, wondering what he should do. The stock market crashes and he basically spends the next six or seven years in 
uh, in Woodstock, New York, living on very little indeed. Or just the stories of James Joyce and his wife living in, I believe Rome is the one that I usually think of when I imagine this, uh, living in Rome, doing, doing his day job thing, not really having to work very much and being able to buy a cheap meal for himself and his family at night uh, for very little money. All of these situations are simply not repeatable today. Um, I can't recall if Toni Morrison was still a editor at Random House when her first novel was published and how long it took for her to be independently uh, independently support herself with her fiction. I don't know if she ever did, uh, because she did become a professor as well. So even the idea of charting the ages and imagining that, well, Joyce at 26, uh, just because he wrote The Dead at the age of 26, doesn't mean that he won the lottery at age 26. It means that he wrote The Dead at the age of 26, and the next morning he went and uh, got up and went to work. Uh, it wasn't until much later that he uh, found his rich patron to support him. Um, and if we suppose, I don't know Dylan Thomas's biography that well, if we suppose that he suddenly became rich and famous in Wales off of his poetry at the age of 19, uh, we can't really say that that led to the most fulfilling life either, or the happiest one, or anything of the kind. So that it was very funny for me to read in a biography of Pablo Picasso, of a rival artist, a younger artist, doing exactly what I did. Uh, his biographer basically says it. He would figure out what age Picasso was when he did this such and such a painting, such and such a painting. And he would kept, he kept telling friends or his wife or his family, I think, well, I have time, and by the time I reach that age, I will have done something just as good as Picasso did. And I have in my notes here that I didn't even write down the guy's name. It's possible that he did do something as good as Picasso. It's possible that he is someone worth remembering. But because it was a book about Picasso, and because he proved a point of mine, um, or made he proved a point of mine by making that point uh, into a ridiculous one, uh, I didn't even write down his name. One of the other things that I'm sure was a misunderstanding, not just of ages, of, of it mattering what age you were when something was done, because it doesn't mean that you were suddenly self-sufficient. You still had to go and take out the garbage. Uh, is the idea of a of simply just being jealous of someone's long career in the public eye. It got to a point, I don't know, uh, seven or eight years ago where I almost felt embarrassed on their part for someone like Robert Lowell or Bob Dylan for being published or being recorded so young and having so many starts and stops, so many uh, back alleys and, and wrong ways in the public eye, even though you also, even though that also means that you have their, their works of greatest genius also appearing before the public. I was really bent out of shape about that. I think I've gotten over that by now. Uh, but it was, it's, it was very hard to think at the time that I've gone through about as many changes as someone like a Lowell or a Dylan has and what I've been doing and my approach to it. It's just that the changes or the, you know, the headline you would see in a review, so-and-so remakes themselves. All of that remaking has been entirely private and no one will ever probably see it. And on top of that, probably the, the hardest bit to deal with in terms of jealousy at all is that none of this is a meritocracy. Uh, 
creative people out there know this. It isn't, uh, and as I've said, in terms of Foer or anybody else, um, it isn't just how well you write. It's the whole package. It isn't. It isn't as I as I found a nice quotation saying. Uh, publishers aren't there to publish novels or publish books. They are there to sell books, and they need to sell the writer as well. Uh, so that it happens that a horribly written book, we can think of like the Da Vinci Code, something like that, um, or the musician Billy Corrigan getting his uh, book of poetry published by Faber and Faber. Uh, you can think of, or just of anyone breaking through by chance or by fame in another field of, well, that's why that movie was made. That's why that book was published. That's why this happened. That's why that happened. It isn't just talent. It's also what you bring with it. And for someone who can't really bring anything else with it, it's very hard to deal with. Um, and I think someone like John Lennon uh, said it very well when he was uh, talking about the Beatles. It must have been uh, somewhere towards the end of his life because he, he sounds, if you find the actual quotation, he sounds a a little angry to be having to be forced to say it. Um, he says that we weren't anybody important. We were just a band who made it very, very big. And that's all. And that's very striking because you think of the growth that the Beatles had. You think of, uh, I've been listening to a lot of Robert Plant, the singer from Led Zeppelin. I've been listening to a lot of his solo music lately. And it's hard to imagine someone like Lennon or McCartney or anyone who was in the Beatles. It's hard to think of someone like Robert Plant or Dylan or, or Robert Lowell or, or many famous authors or artists. It's hard to think of them going where they did, developing in the way they did, without having attention already, without having the backing of fame or attention or renown or just the leisure of the support of their own money that they've gotten from this if that hadn't happened first. It's astonishing to think of uh, somebody like Dylan or somebody like uh, John Lennon uh, to imagine how much time they would have had to sit around and experiment or to find new things to find new voices, to find new sounds, or for, for poets to find a new voice. How would you do that if you're basically working, you know, uh, a day job in retail, which we can imagine many poets doing, or, uh, or the, the cliche of the actor in Hollywood who is waiting tables? Where do you, where do you have those risky chance encounters that it seems only the privilege of the already successful, uh, only they uh, have the opportunity to encounter those moments. So that when I encounter them now, I sort of grab them maybe too desperately, maybe choke them, maybe choke the life out of them. It's, uh, or, or just what, I, what I've heard of other writers who uh, went to the bigger schools uh, or their parents had the money and they you know, ended up being able to go to Europe for a year or two or to study under someone who won the Nobel Prize you know, and to get advice from them. So that it's very hard to come upon Patti Smith when, when she's asked who are the musicians that she really loves and she says, the people we've never heard of, the people in their garage, the people uh, that no one will hear about for years. On the one hand, I want to cheer her on for saying something like that. On the other hand, it's just a brutal fucking thing to say. Because the, <laughs> cause what she's saying is those people will not be discovered for a very, very long time. And how do you, how do you keep going if that is the case for you. Um, 
And the other hand, I found this sentence in a biography of Caravaggio, an amazing biography of Caravaggio by the writer Peter Raab. And it's just in the middle of talking about uh, Caravaggio's crowd in Rome and the people he ran with. And uh, Peter Raab says this wonderful thing. He says, It was all very complicated, lustful, and foul-mouthed. It was very violent in a seemingly random way and almost unimaginable as a milieu or a moment conducive to the reinvention of European art. And that may well be it too, is that uh, what I'm really jealous of, if I'm jealous of anything, is not the attention, but the, the, the release from the anxiety of how to pay the bills. Uh, I, because I know that uh, Ted Hughes, for instance, a poet that I adore, or Seamus Heaney, um, uh, I know that basically they had to go to the bathroom every day. They had to wash the dishes. They had to do all of the mundane things that I'm talking about here. Um, and we all have to. And part of what I didn't learn as a 12 and 13 year old and that I'm still griping about now is this childish way of thinking that, uh, that, uh, that somehow I, I deserve what I haven't been given yet, which is a ridiculous idea. Um, And there's simply also the, the misunderstanding of what a writer or an artist is. Uh, somehow I came upon the assumption that writers are sort of vacuums of books, that uh, the writer is, is knowledgeable not just in being able to write, but, but in being able to talk effusively about what they've written and all the rest of it. Uh, and then I come upon remarks in the Whitman biography I've been reading that Whitman was not a reader so much as someone who scanned for things that he liked. I found the same remark about Shakespeare. He wasn't someone who read voraciously. He was someone who scanned voraciously and picked out the things that he loved. Uh, if we're talking about purity of tradition or of someone doing something um, academically knowledgeable, uh, it's wonderful to think that Shakespeare, when he came to write King Lear, he didn't rely on the uh, the standard, what we would call uh, histories of the time of Holinshed or uh, Geoffrey Monmouth, but instead he did draw on those, but instead he basically drew his inspiration on an older version of the play, uh, on the same idea of King Lear and his daughters. I know that one of the things that poisoned my mind very early on was a, was a teacher who first planted the seed in me that there is a difference between literary writing and writing that is not literary and that you need to know the difference. You need to be able to look up at one of them and look down at the other. But I think the, the greatest, perhaps the greatest mistake I just thought of this today. I, I'm holding here uh, a Bantam classic of the Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, which I first read, let's see, you know, the, the summer that I graduated from high school. And there are some nice uh, bits from Kafka's diaries and his letters in here. And this is a few of the things that Kafka says. Um... It is easy to recognize a concentration in me of all my forces on writing. When it became clear in my organism that writing was the most productive direction for my being to take, everything rushed in that direction and left empty all those abilities which were directed toward the joys of sex, eating, drinking, philosophical reflection, and above all, music. Naturally, I did not find this purpose independently and consciously. Rather, it found itself and is now interfered with only by the office, but that interferes with it completely. And you can imagine being uh, newly minted as an idea of being a writer in late high school and coming across a remark like that and feeling completely justified in all of the 
antisocial <laughs> antisocial tendencies uh, that I was heir to. Same with this remark from his diary in 1914. What will be my fate as a writer is very simple. My talent for portraying my dreamlike inner life has thrust all other matters into the background. My life has dwindled dreadfully, nor will it cease to dwindle. Nothing else will ever satisfy me. And in a letter to his friend written eight years later, Perhaps there is another kind of writing. I only know this one, in the night. When anxiety does not let me sleep, I only know this one. And what is devilish in it seems to me quite clear. It is the vanity and the craving for enjoyment, which is forever worrying around oneself, or even around someone else, and enjoying it. The wish that, that, the, I, that the naive person sometimes has I would like to die and watch others crying over me is what, excuse me, that is what a writer constantly experiences. He dies or he does not live and continually cries over himself. Um, it's incredible to see that uh, and to think, what the hell did my 17-year-old self make of that other than it being a complete uh, justification for my own uh, inability to be very social, my own nervousness around girls. I mean, th the whole thing is right there. Basically, just be a writer. Go and do that. Sacrifice everything else. Be isolated. Do it. Um, and when I look back on it now, the 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 other mistake seems to be not only in, not only in literally trying to take someone like Kafka as a model, which is not to be recommended in most cases, is that I seem to have imagined uh, in my belief that I should be compensated and uh, known for what I'm doing right now, uh, in the belief that, that that should be the case for me, I seem to especially in reading these diary entries of Kafka's and knowing that he died, you know, basically unknown and not very published in his lifetime. And that he and that and that he asked for his work to be destroyed and his friend didn't destroy it and instead published it and published his diaries and his letters as well as his unfinished novels. Taking those two things in hand that I this is something I believe I deserve simply because I'm being uh sincere, and I believe this is the one thing I can do, and that that should matter. I seem to have taken the idea of future renown happening at the same time as his isolation. I seem to have imagined it, that that was possible. Because on the other hand, if fame or renown or just a living suddenly fell on top of me. I have no idea whether I would be able to handle that either. Um, I don't know if I would be someone like Errol Morris. I remember uh, when he, I think he won the Oscar for his documentary, The Fog of War. And we got, when he got up on the stage to accept the award, he basically said, well, it's about time you recognized my films. Thank you. I mean, would I turn into that person? I don't think that I would. And you also just run around uh, thinking, well, would the writers I admire now be famous or be well-known or would they have been discovered in the age of social media, in the age of the easiest fame or in the age of any of this? Uh, would Cormac McCarthy really have been able to have sent his book to the equivalent of William Faulkner's agent or editor nowadays? Would Seamus Heaney have been discovered in the north of Ireland and be published by Faber and Faber if he was around today? And it's so very easy and so damaging and self-destructive to go around in these circles uh, imagining these things, imagining the, uh, the, the where or the why uh, if I had only lived then, or how different would I be, though, if I did live then, etc., etc. 
so that the only thing that I can think to do, and we're at 53 minutes here, the only thing that I can really think to do is actually something that my rabbi told me when I told him that I was having difficulties sometime last year. I was expecting, you know, he's my rabbi, he would say, read Torah, go back to Torah, check out Talmud, check out these other books, look at this stuff. And what he told me instead was fall back uh, at all times, whenever you can, fall back on ritual and fall back on family. Those two things, whatever you consider to be ritual and whatever you consider to be family. I consider, obviously, my wife and daughter and my parents and my in-laws and my brother and his family. I consider them to be my family, but I also consider the life that I have with these writers and these poets and the, the myths that I've been able to share here. I consider them my family. Uh, Seamus Heaney has a wonderful remark. Uh, he refers to these other writers that uh, that a poet lives with and that a poet's family has to live with their influence and their presence. Uh, he refers to them as uh, a poet's invoked spirits. And so what I do instead of reading the New York Times book review or what I do instead of scanning something on social media about so-and-so getting a publishing contract or so-and-so uh, getting a grant and then realizing, oh, they're the student of this person or they go to this school or whatever it is. Instead of doing all of those things that immediately prop up jealousy, uh, I will go to the huge family that I have. And I will go to the ritual that I have, not just the ritual of daily study and daily prayer. And of course, one of the reasons that I became Jewish was because there is a tradition, a magnificent tradition of daily, constant, unending study. Uh, but the ritual is also simply in the poetry, in the writing, in, in uh, put it this way, with only three and a half minutes left. Uh, Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption says that his friend was able to tunnel through a prison uh, because he had a big goddamn poster and because he had patience and time. And when I think more about it, the, the reason that I am attracted to biographies of writers is because I want to see what they do with their patience and their time. The big goddamn poster, I assume, is what happens when they're, uh, when they're finally writing. But what are they doing when they're not writing? What is the ritual in the family, the patience and the time that they fill their lives with? What is the thing they do? Uh, I remember recently seeing a documentary about Nina Simone and how just on it she was uh, on stage dealing with hecklers and catcalls and just performing to the end of the earth. And then when she comes off stage, just collapsing and not really knowing what to do. I mean, that example is everywhere. What, what do you do when you're not writing, when you're not doing poetry? And how do you manage writing poetry or music or being a performer or anything? How do you balance the lightning or the fire that you hold in your hands when you're not doing it. For instance, now I suddenly stumbled upon writing a series of poems about Shakespeare, which came out of nowhere, out of, totally out of left field. I know that I could be spending all of my time writing these poems. I could fill, a, fill 30 pages in a notebook in, in a few days if I wanted to. But I've learned over time that when the fire is there, it is there, and if I uh, hold on to it in a certain way, I can extend the amount of time that is there. 
I know that if I fill 30 pages in a day or two, it'll be exhausted and grouchy and uh, not worth talking to for a week or a month. And so you sort of learn to deal with these moods, how to do these things. Um, I don't know how much I've spoken about jealousy here. That's what it was supposed to be about, or about my, uh, my stubbornness. But I think I got out basically what I wanted to, and I hope it has been worth listening to as I near the 60-minute mark. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.